The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hey, everyone. I'm Leah Smart, and welcome to In the Arena, a LinkedIn self-development podcast. Our show explores the vulnerable aspects of the human experience to inspire transformation. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode. I am so excited to share it with you. Now, a few years ago, I discovered the Enneagram, and recently there's been a lot of buzz about it. If you haven't heard of it, It's the nine-type personality assessment that helps with our own growth, development, and finding our purpose in life. If you have heard the buzz, great. This episode is going to go much deeper than you've likely gone. I got a chance to connect with two of the foremost Enneagram teachers in the world, B. Chestnut and Aranio Pice, and I'm so grateful for their work and leadership in this space. So real quick, before I hand it over to them, If you have ever wondered how to become a better version of yourself, this episode is for you. And if you've ever felt lost about where to start, this episode is absolutely for you. The Enneagram is the most practical and deep tool I have ever found that gives you a roadmap for your own self-development. It's truly supporting how each of us can show up in the world. And if you embrace it, it will change your life. Now, in this episode, I also got to bring along the amazing human who introduced me to the Enneagram, my former colleague and friend, Jessa Mortigy. She's the VP of talent at Airtable, so you'll hear her in there too. And finally, B and Iranio have a new book. It's called The Enneagram Guide to Waking Up. Find your path, face your shadow, discover your true self. It is a simple yet deeply contextual guide for anyone who's getting introduced to this work or wants to go a little bit deeper. B. Chestnut also wrote The Nine Types of Leadership, which dives into what the Enneagram looks like at work. Trust me, you all, you want this information, and you're going to want to share it with other people once you do it. Everyone I've ever worked with on the Enneagram has said, this is the story of my life. So enjoy the episode, enjoy diving into the Enneagram, and I'll see you on the other side. When we seek to grow and develop ourselves, what do we need most to have an effective growth process? How will you feel and how successful will you be when you decide to be yourself at work? Well, thank you so much for joining us today, B and Aranyo, and my guest host, Jess Amortigui. The Enneagram is an incredibly powerful system that I think a lot of people are still trying to grapple with, understand, and I know there's no such thing necessarily as an Enneagram expert, but can you share with us what you understand so far about the Enneagram system? Sure. Um, I think it's a a uniquely powerful tool for self-development because it provides personality type descriptions that are incredibly accurate and very deep and thorough and detailed. So when you find your type, it gives you a lot of information about both what you can readily observe in yourself, uh, but also blind spots and uh, unconscious tendencies. 
that while they may drive you, you may be unaware of, but they can have an effect in your life. Uh, and so I think it's an amazing tool to further self-development because we all need something to help us focus on what's most important. It helps us make sense of our experience. You know, I worked as a therapist for a long time. And, you know, when someone comes into therapy or when someone starts a self-development process, there's a question of where do you start? You know, how do you know how to focus your efforts in the ways that you can get the maximum benefit? And I think the Enneagram just really creates a kind of map uh, that highlights habitual patterns that provides an enormous uh, way of accelerating inner development by providing a real, a really detailed, specific and helpful map. To me, if I may add to this, Leah, when 25 years ago, I got to know the Enneagram, what amazed me is that it wasn't really another typology, another self-knowledge system. It was and it still is for me after 25 years studying it pretty hard, an amazing way to overcome my own limitations. It's a self-development process. It's something that brings me to my best. So it's a process of self-development rather than a, a way of stereotyping people and labeling them. And that makes the Enneagram really amazing. And also when it comes to development, it's very complete because we're talking about professional development, personal development, but also psychological development and even spiritual development. So it's very comprehensive. You know, will you actually, before we go any further, you all have got to tell us there's, there's a whole system, right? There's nine types. I'm sure for everybody listening, they're going, what's my type? How do I figure it out? And we know they won't get it from your brief descriptions, but we'd love to hear what are the nine types on the Enneagram? I like to start with the centers of intelligence as a entry point to the nine types. The Enneagram is based on a model of human experience that says we have three centers of intelligence or ways of processing information from the outside world. Our head that kind of thinks and analyzes and plans, our heart that's more based on our emotions, and our body is also a center of intelligence, a kind of gut knowing or instinctual intelligence, uh, moving into action or not moving into action. And the idea is we all have all three of these centers, but when we identify with a personality, we are by definition out of balance because uh, we're not operating from all of who we are, but rather just that part of ourselves that developed to help us survive in the world. So the idea is, is that each of the nine types overuses one of those three centers of intelligence and doesn't use the other two as much. So there are three types that are what we would call head-based types that are more based in the thinking function, three types that are more heart-based, based in the emotional center, and three types that are body-based. So maybe I'll start and maybe Ronio and I can trade off talk, talking about the types. We like to start with the body-based types, eight, nine, and one. So I'll start by describing type eight. So one of the things that defines the types and in doing them in a short form, of course, this is just the tip of the iceberg, but is the focus of attention. 
So I'll talk a little bit in terms of just the focus of attention and maybe some strengths and challenges for, for each of the types. The focus of attention for eights is on power and control and deploying strength in the world. But when they focus on their own strength, because eights tend to see the world in terms of people being divided into the strong and the weak. And of course, if you see the world that way, who will you identify with? You'll naturally probably want to identify with the strong. Although again, this everything we're going to say tends to be very unconscious. And so there's an identification with being strong and eights tend to have a big energy, a big presence. They are very good at tackling big challenges. They have easier access to anger than most types and they're, they're better than most types at engaging in conflict, uh, constructive conflict often to help move things forward. And so they tend to be very direct and assertive. They see the big picture very easily, but they tend to not see their vulnerability. So their blind spots are a lot around not being in touch with what they might feel as weakness or any vulnerable or softer emotions. And of course, the personality focus on being strong is an overcompensation and being strong as a way of denying weakness. So that's kind of the fun, a fundamental tension at the core of the, the eight personality. Do you want to talk about nine, Urani? Sure. So nine's uh, focus of attention is on external demands of different kinds. So nines are really good in perceiving what others need and what the environment needs, and they are always available and they are super helpful and attentive, easily taking other people's opinions and consider all sides of a matter. And at the same time, they find it really hard to place attention in their own needs and demands and, and what they need. Their attention is not inside, so they self-forget quite a bit. And they put themselves second or third. So, for instance, in terms of career, it happens sometimes that nines uh, put their own careers in, in a second place and take care of other people's careers first. And they find it really hard to self-promote or to show the good things in them because it's, it's about self-forgetting. Sometimes other people look at nines and see it's great, they're modest, but it's actually shown in the Enneagram as self-forgetting and something that uh, nines need to learn how to bring attention back to themselves and to feel being more worthy and have more value in self. What about ones B? I just want to say one more quick thing about nines just to put a slightly finer point on it and that nines focus on creating harmony in their environments and avoiding conflict. And it's the avoidance of conflict that in part sort of motivates them to tune out to their anger or their desires inside. Because if you have a strong opinion or you get mad about something, you might get into conflict with people. So the one is the third body-based type. And ones are sometimes called, although we don't always use the names because we think the names can be as misleading as they are helpful. But I think in the beginning, sometimes it helps people to kind of attach their new information onto a label but don't take the label too far. Ones can be called the perfectionist or the reformer, and they focus their attention on right and wrong, good and bad. They automatically see how everything they put their attention on can be improved or made better. 
So it's like they see something and they automatically see how whatever that is differs from an ideal of perfection of how that thing could be. <laughs> so there are people who are really good at correcting errors, at really good at improvement, both around of themselves, uh, but also the world around them. Now, they tend to be very, very self-critical. Now, all of us are self-critical <laughs> these days, but ones are more self-critical than average, uh, and they can also be critical of other people because, again, they have this kind of a judging mind that's always saying, okay, what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's bad, and they try to be good and try to avoid being bad or making mistakes or anything like that. Their strengths, though, are that they tend to be very detail-oriented, very hardworking, reliable, ethical, responsible. But one of the things I like about the Enneagram is it, it shows us how when we overdo our strengths, they become liabilities. So the challenges for ones is that they can be overly responsible. They can be too critical. They can be too self-controlling when they're trying to do everything right. They put a lid on their own feelings and impulses. And so sometimes they get out of touch with the natural flow or rhythm that might that they might be more in tune with if they weren't kind of trying to control themselves so much to do things right and be perfect. As a seven, I used to tell Jess I can sniff out a one because it's it's like the antithesis of so much of what we try to create in our worlds. And so seeing it in someone else is this like scary moment of going, oh my gosh, the rules, the responsibility, the doing the right thing all the time, all of that was used to be triggering for me. But on my journey, you know, and, and for those of you who are just learning about the Enneagram, each Enneagram has lines that point to areas of ways in which we can develop. And so the seven, which I am, points to one. So it was only in the last 12 months that I went, oh, right, there's a reason for the discipline and the rules. <laughs> and actually in that, I find freedom. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's it's very common. Uh, this reaction is actually um, very common, but also good, Leah, because we need to undertake some of the features of those two arrow points. For you as a seven, it's five and one. But guess what? These are things we really resist against. So not only you, all of us in our types. So again, the Enneagram shows a way out of our box, for instance, by means of going to these two arrow connecting points and uh, we can become a more complete person. But as B was saying, I think she's right. She needs to be the one describing type two because she's a two. Yeah, and I like to say that one is the antidote for seven in some ways. It's all about balance, creating more balance. So type two, the first of the three heart types, that's my type. So twos focus a lot on other people, <laughs> on how other people are feeling and especially what we can do to create connection or rapport with other people. So I, I often say that I think in the Enneagram world, there are some misconceptions about twos and the two is often called the helper or the giver. But I think that title leads people to have an overly simplistic view of twos as kind of just the, the sort of caretaker type, which, you know, is partly true. Uh, but for me, it's really about being liked. It's not necessarily about helping. That's not the main point. Now, helping people, supporting others can be a vehicle for being liked, <laughs> but it's the achievement of a positive connection. It's to 
make other people have positive feelings about me. That's kind of the main goal. Because when everyone likes me, when people are thinking good things about me, I sort of feel like I can relax. Um, that's kind of where I feel secure and like there's not going to be any problems and I'll be, I'll receive the support I need. Now, Twos, a little bit like nines, focus a lot outside them. Uh, so twos are really good in at tuning into how other people feel and what other people need. And sometimes, again, if that's someone I want to connect with, there'll be a way of sort of shape-shifting to emphasize parts of myself that will, and I think that person will like and de-emphasize parts that maybe they won't like. But it's about creating that relationship or a positive connection with that person. Now, one of the things the Enneagram helps us understand is when we focus one place, there's something where we're not focused. And similar to nines, twos aren't so in tune with their insides. So when I first started doing Enneagram work a long time ago, I was in a women's group. And I remember one day the, the leader of the group turned to me and said, so what do you need from the group today, B? And I thought about that question and I had, I had no idea how to answer that question. None. It was the weirdest thing. It seemed like a simple question, but it was as if I looked inside to see what I needed and there was like a void. It was like this existential anxiety of like, wow, I have no idea what I need. And at first in my growth process, I often didn't know what I was feeling. I knew what other people were feeling more than I knew what I, I was feeling. Now, after many years of therapy, now I know very clearly what I'm feeling and I am an emotional person, but as at twos tend to part of the time put a lid on their feelings and part of the time the lid comes off and we can be very emotional. Uh, but the strengths of the two are having a genuine interest in people. I was a therapist for many years and people would say to me, like, don't you get tired of hearing people talk about their problems all day? And I would say, actually, no. <laughs> I love hearing people talk about themselves. It's an honor and I'm endlessly interested in people. So that's, that's a good thing. But on the downside, it's hard for us to say no and make boundaries. It's hard to be direct sometimes. Twos can be very indirect because it can be hard to be in touch with the fact that helping others can be actually a form of control. So the sort of blind spots for twos, one of the blind spots is their own needs, but the other one is how supporting others is often, can sometimes be a manipulation. Often it's very unconscious. There's a kind of giving to get, like if I'm really nice to you, maybe you'll be really nice to me. If I meet your needs, maybe when I need something, you'll meet my need, hopefully without me having to ask because twos are not very good at asking for help. Right, so type three. For threes who are also emotional types on the Enneagram, but sometimes don't look like, the focus of attention goes to achieving success. Also goals of all kinds, accomplishments, of course, and paying attention to their image. So threes are really goal-getters. They, they're super active, positive people who want to just you know, make things happen. And they are hard workers and many times they find it really, really hard to stop. I mean, in our society nowadays, with all resources we have, especially electronics and so on, we all find it hard to stop. But only for threes, stopping feels almost like dying. And that's because threes have come to identify with doing as an identity for them. So the risk is 
to become a little bit like a human doing, not a human being. And being is what? What is that? You know, what is being? What is feeling? And actually, the paradox is threes are feeling types. Feelings come to the threes all the time, but they think that feelings will be damaging to their performance, and they push them away. So here's an emotional type who tries to not be an emotional type. And threes shapeshift a little bit like twos do to be admired and recognized in a prototype of what people expect from them. But by shapeshifting, they lose touch with who they really are. And because they shapeshift very unconsciously, automatically and without noticing, then they lose uh, touch with whatever is more stable in them, whatever is more true in them. It's like an actor identifying with a character in, in different situations in life. Now, of course, strengths have to do with doing, achieving, and even the adaptability. But on the other hand, these are not strengths per se, when we, we take into account the need for growth, inner growth. So the, the truer strengths of, of threes when they grow are when they get more emotional and they influence people by being extremely sensitive. But that takes courage and self-observation skills. And the challenges for threes have to do with stopping just being enjoying the moment and even asking yourself questions like, what do I really like? What do I really want? Because threes may very well just uh, go ahead with what will lead them to be more, more successful. But sometimes going for success doesn't mean, doesn't equal being joyful and liking what you're doing. So threes need to be more in touch with our own hearts and not as much uh, in touch with the image they convey out in the world. So, Yorani, I can, I can identify with this three and especially this death of not doing anything. And funny enough, so here I am in a new job and I started on Monday and someone pulls up a book the first 90 days. I was just like, give me the bottom line. What is this? And I'm like, the first 90 days, you do nothing but listen. I was like, yeah, it's never going to happen. I was like, you're the most anxious person on the planet. So, yeah, that idea of just being still and listening was like, it, it felt like death when I heard that. Yeah. I was like, yeah, that's just, you know, bury me now if I'm just supposed to listen and do nothing. <laughs> Jess, this is so great that you're bringing this up. Uh, you know, I love it. And what happens deeper inside threes is that they come from a mindset of, I make things happen in the world, and if I don't do anything, nothing will happen and the world will collapse. So it's a limiting belief that if you are not active, things will not happen. So think of the best place you can go to and be, spend a few minutes, that you will be able to just watch what's happening. Like some will say, I'll go to the beach and just see the waves and so on and the birds. So any experience you have of seeing how everything is already being done will help you on that. I love that. It, it, uh, it reminds me, you know, what I love, one of the things I love so much about the Enneagram is the ability to 
see the fear. And, you know, when I think of fear and heard the acronym false evidence appearing real, and what is that evidence that I see, that kind of false evidence that appears so real and how the ability to break from that, yeah. to test that, to sit with stillness and realize the world still goes on. Yes, exactly. I'll still be valued. I can still be successful. And we're continuing to work through that and test that thing. So, so powerful. Yeah, you can reframe then what being successful means also. And, you know, it's, it's very, very good to just say that personality in the Enneagram is a limited self, is something that is fake. Actually, when we describe the nine personalities, we are describing who we are not. We are something much bigger than that and higher than that, but we lost touch with it. So knowing your type has one main objective, to know why you are not only that and who you can be when you, when you grow psycho-spiritually. And, well, and on the three, you know, I wonder if there are people listening thinking, oh, I must be a three. And I remember an episode you both did about kind of the types by country, what country would be what number. Would you all say that the U.S. is a three kind of country? And that may be why people identify with so much of this piece? Yes, America is a three culture. And it's interesting because sometimes this is sort of seen as normal, a normal way to be instead of a particular personality style. And in a way, it makes it easier in some ways for threes to be successful because the, their operating system is so much aligned with what the culture values, working really hard, achieving things, making money and, and having titles and looking good and not being too emotional. But on the other hand, it actually makes it really hard for threes when they seek to grow because it's hard to give up. You know, if you're operating, you've got a big job or a big title, or you're, you know, having a lot of the material rewards of success, there can be a real fear of like, well, what will happen if I change this? But I think it, it is interesting to kind of have that sense of that this is operating at the cultural level as well as a reinforcer in some ways for threes. All right, B, tell us about type four. One of my favorites. <laughs> yeah, so type four is um, the third of the three heart types. And if there's an underlying tension in all of us, uh, especially growing up as children between attachment and authenticity, in other words, who we decide to be in order that other people will approve of us or that our parents will be happy with us versus being who we really are, which sometimes those things are at odds. Twos and threes go a little more toward attachment, like, okay, I'll give up sort of showing who I am authentically or even being aware of that to connect with others, to be who others want me to be. Fours kind of go more toward authenticity. So fours focus of attention is on their internal experience. So kind of the opposite for twos. Fours focus more inside than they do on the outside. We call that self-referencing. So fours tend to be very in tune with how they're feeling and what they're thinking. Now, they're also very relationship focused, but that takes the form of being very aware of how connected or disconnected they are to others and also how understood they are by others. So being understood by others is very important. 
and expressing themselves to create understanding is very important. So they tend to be very in touch with their emotions. There's basically three versions of every type. One of the versions of three tends to repress emotions a little bit more, but they tend to be very uh, in touch with their emotions, probably more so than any of the nine types. They live more in their emotions. In fact, they can over-identify with their emotions. They Just like a three thinks, I am what I do, the four can think, I am what I feel. And again, they're more than that, but there can be this sense of like what I feel is, is really all important, very central. Now, fours tend to also compare themselves to others a lot and often see themselves as less than or more than, but probably a little more often less than. And they can tend to have a kind of sense of inadequacy, like I'm not good enough because of that comparing mind. They can be a kind of sense of other people have something I'm lacking. And so there's also often a focus on what's missing and it can be in themselves or in a situation. Like here's what's what's we're not paying attention to or what's not happening. Interestingly, fours are also truth tellers. They're very emotionally intuitive. This is one of their big strengths. They kind of can sense what's going on at the emotional level underneath the kind of surface level of the way people might be acting. So on a team, for instance, they can be really helpful by saying, you know, here's what I think we're not talking about. Or here's a little bit of the shadow that no one really wants to see. And they can they just naturally see that and and bring it to light. They t can tend to be a little even nonconformist and individualistic in terms of, hey, this is what I authentically think and feel, and I'm not going to hold that back. I'm going to say it. Whereas twos and threes will ra might rather sometimes unconsciously hold things back if they think people won't like it. <laughs> Fours will be like, well, this is it. You know, this is what's authentic. This is how I authentically feel. And if you don't like it, you don't like it, you know, and they, they shape shift much less. Or if they do shape shift, they're very aware of it and they don't really like it. But sometimes they do it because they realize, okay, I want people to see me in a certain light and I'm afraid they're going to see me in a negative light. One more thing about fours is interestingly, their growth path has to do with owning more of the positive, seeing what's not missing, you know, seeing what's good in the here and now, seeing what's positive in themselves, owning their strengths, because that's what they tend to not fully own. And as we like, you know, I think for Jess and I, and I'm, I'm curious as people who are getting to know the Enneagram, and if you all can just share this before head types is, I think for both of us, we resonate deeply with the three and the four, and yet we've typed as sevens. Is it possible to have your Enneagram number change throughout your life? Are you born with it? Can you have multiples? That, that's a good question and one that gets asked a lot when we're introducing the Enneagram. And, and according to the theory, you are one type through your life. You don't change types. You grow within that type. So the Enneagram is very much a growth model, but growth in this case means going from a lower level of awareness to a higher level of awareness. And so you look a bit different within your own type as you grow and develop. Now, we believe that type is with us from birth. Of course, nature and nurture both play a role in how our personalities express themselves. But we believe type, the basic sort of foundational type is with you. And then the way it gets expressed in your life can be shaped by your early experience. You know, especially if you had, say, a hard challenging early experience, 
your defenses may have had to be stronger. And so your personality patterns may be a bit more rigid. But if you address that, if you work on, you know, on yourself in a conscious way, everyone can grow whether no matter how um, difficult an early start they had. But yeah, we don't, you don't change type. And if you relate to more than one type, that's normal. <laughs> Partly because different types have d- similarities. They do the same behaviors or they have similar themes like sevens and threes. There's a lot that they have in common. They can look very similar. Fours and sevens, even though in some ways they're opposites, in some ways we've encountered a lot of people who have a hard time discerning between either one. But the idea would be that there's definitely one or the other that is your core type. Although sometimes it can be a little challenging in, in to, to really land because it's like, well, but you know, I also relate to this type. So part of the part of the process of using the Enneagram is allowing yourself to have finding your type be the first um, stage. And sometimes that stage lasts a long time because it's a just it's all about self observation and, and learning. And and some of the distinctions can be a little bit tricky to understand. There are always key distinctions that uh, people need to look at to see if they are of this one type or that other type. So for instance, Leah, you identify with seven, but you sometimes might wonder you might be a four. So one very key distinction would be, is it an effort for you to stay in touch with sadness and pain and suffering? So if it is really an effort to stay in touch with it, that's seven, because fours have a very natural tendency to stay in touch with that. Or for you, Jess, a a potential three, like three and seven, you could say, do you really go for success uh, no matter what, even if you need to sacrifice your pleasure or pleasure comes first and success is more of a consequence when you are having pleasure, you know? So these are a a few differentiators and we could potentially ask questions for all combinations but we will need several episodes of your beautiful podcast to do so and you have a whole podcast about it (laughs) (laughs) yeah another one for three and seven is how hard or easy is it for you to focus threes have a really easy time focusing especially on a goal like Three is focused like a laser beam on a goal, and it can be hard for them to move their focus off the goal when they're on the path toward the goal. Sevens get distracted more easily because it's more about what's interesting to think about or what's fun and pleasurable, and it can be harder for them to really focus in on what they're doing. Yeah, and yet another one would be, Jess, if you are a three, you will be always paying attention of what other people think of you. While if you're a seven, you will be sorry for people who don't see that you're fun. It's like sevens are not worried as much about what other people see. They they are super happy with themselves already, you know? So Which is also a big difference between seven and four, because fours are always kind of thinking, I've got to earn it, you know, I've got to prove myself. I'm not sort of whereas sevens are like you know, a little bit more naturally confident because they they kind of have a maybe even sometimes overconfidence in their ability to to be seen in a positive light. So there we go. I think the first two were three. The last one is definitely seven. And as Leah said, with the one, she can sniff out a one. I sniff out a one because I was like, what? what's the big lighting up? 
what's the deal? Like, you know, this isn't a big deal. You're so serious over there. It's just fun. Have fun. And so there, I, I resonate. I resonate heavily. And I can, that's my sniffer for the one. Yeah. <laughs> and we all have traits of all nine points, but we call type just that one point that's very hard for us not to be like that. You know, it's not only a trait, it's something that uh, I'm unfortunately boxed into that and I can't do things much differently. And then when I find that out, I start focusing my, my efforts and my inner development on what really will bring me the best results. So moving on to fives and the, the head types, I am five, so I can speak a little bit from my own experience. As a five, I focus a lot of my attention on uh, learning, grabbing information, knowledge of all kinds. But also I focus a lot of attention on the environment and people to make sure that, that I will not have too many demands on me. And this is uh, how fives work. We crave for privacy and to, to be independent and self-sufficient and to have control over our own agendas. And it's hard for fives when other people interfere, interrupt too much. And when they don't have opportunities to be by themselves and to establish their own priorities. So on one hand, fives get really focused on going deeper on things. They become very knowledgeable. They also get calm and somewhat patient in different ways. But this is all a consequence of detaching. And detaching, not only from other people, as I was saying, but detaching from their own feelings. And sometimes from all of life that's happening around them. So fives create their own inner space and they, they contract and go inside and leave their own inner worlds. And that can be super fun for fives. And they usually don't feel bad when they're alone, for instance. But when fives grow, they get different sorts of strengths. They get more in touch with their feelings and more connected to others, but still mentally very sharp and able, capable of sharing opinions and confronting them in a good way. That's a slightly more awakened five that is still there in the world relating and not only within themselves and not disconnecting as much from their own energies. So a more energized five is a good five, you know, because when we start avoiding requests and demands from other people, we start lowering down our energy and living less, living with less and doing less and saying no to too many things in life. So fives need to go for more. It's like getting rid of this economy of scarcity that they have created for themselves. And challenges for fives then are staying connected, being more intense, vibrating more, and speaking their truth right away, not by the end of the meeting. Because, by the way, at times fives in a meeting, 
drew like this. Oh my God, these people have no idea what they are talking about and it will be too much for me to even start explaining. And I'm just counting the minutes for that to finish and I'll just go do my way the, the other time and I won't bother explaining them. So there is a whole arrogance that comes with all this positioning in life. But it's also because fives have detached. And it's super important for fives to develop emotionally and physically so that they are not just a head, a walking head, uh, just thinking and planning and analyzing everything. All right, and six. So type six, uh, the second of the head types. Six is what we call the core fear point. Each of the three triads of types is associated with a core emotion fear for the head types, anger for the body types, sadness for the heart types. And sixes are motivated by fear in a central way. And by the way, the Enneagram really points to deeper motivations as opposed to just behavioral traits. But the interesting thing is a lot of sixes, before they learn the Enneagram, they don't consciously experience themselves as fearful or they don't call it fear. They might say something like, I'm just really good at being prepared. Uh, I'm really good problem solver. I like to poke holes in things, you know, but there is this sense that sixes have of kind of scanning the horizon for threats and risks and dangers because there is this need for safety and certainty, but a uh, kind of difficulty actually finding it. So their focus of attention is very much on what could go wrong and anticipating what might go wrong before it happens so they can prepare contingency plans, they can sort of problem solve proactively so that if the worst happens, they're ready. Now, they tend to think in terms of worst case scenarios. They also can be very doubting and skeptical. It can be hard for them to trust others. It can be hard for them to trust surface appearances. They're kind of looking for ulterior motives. They're watching people to see if they're being consistent, if they're trustworthy. They tend to have authority issues because if you're someone who's fear-based, people with power are potentially a source of threat. And so they both want a good authority that can help them feel safe, but they also question authority or test authority or even potentially rebel against authority if that authority proves untrustworthy. So strengths uh, that sixes have, if you if you have one on a team, it's actually really good because they're great troubleshooters. They're great at helping you figure out what can go wrong as a way of making your plan better. Now, sometimes they get perceived as being negative or pessimistic, but most sixes will say, I'm just being realistic. I'm not negative or pessimistic. They don't see themselves that way. And again, sometimes they don't recognize what motivates them as fear until they learn the Enneagram and the Enneagram helps them see that fear is a core issue and the way they try to cope with fear can also be problematic and get them in trouble. They can also project fearful scenarios out there in the world. They tend to be natural contrarians. When you say something, they'll automatically say the other side. In fact, one of the names for the six is the devil's advocate. So they tend to be naturally humble and self-deprecating. They can be very funny, very responsible, really um, bring a lot of attentiveness to bear on making th sure things go well. But the challenge is getting in touch with fear and learning to trust and have more faith and have more faith in themselves, not doubt so much, uh, also have more faith in others. Over the summer, I lived with a six and we used to go on road bike rides. And before the road bike ride, 
as a seven, I'm like, all right, let's just get on the bike. Let's go. It's going to be so fun. I'm jumping out. This He's in the garage, literally pumping up the tires. He's like, I have this kit, this kit, and this kit. Like, everything's going to be good. And I was like, what would I do without you? And also, what would you do without me? Because both of us would be in trouble. <laughs> yes, yes. They're a great team because the seven wants to look at the positive data and not the negative data. And the six can't help but look at the negative data and has a hard time seeing positive data. Exactly. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. All right, Oranio, wrap us up with the seven. So sevens uh, have very particular focus of attention. It goes to... Attention goes first to multiple options. I don't want to have only one course of action here, only one project, only one idea. I need to have several because I want to jump from one to another when I'm getting bored. Another thing is focusing on what's positive as a way to avoid whatever is negative. So we can say that seven's focus of attention goes anywhere away from pain and suffering. It's like avoiding those by all means, right? And also focus, they, they focus attention on anything that, that feels upbeat. Might be an, uh, someone else's idea or a project, an invitation to do something, to go by, but not even thinking, what, what am I leaving behind? Or is this really for me or whatever? And sometimes it's all about satisfying more immediate needs for pleasure. And it's a little bit hard for servants to go on when pleasure stops. So for some servants, not all, it's hard to complete projects, complete stuff. For other servants, in order to do so, it takes rationalization, like bringing a colorful frame to a black and white picture and uh, just doing things differently so that they don't get bored. So they many times need to come up with alternative ways of doing things. And this is why it's a big challenge for them to stick with routines, to have focus on one thing at a time. 
and also it's hard for servants, for obvious reasons, to carry uh, diff difficult conversations. Another thing is, it's hard for servants to stay, period. It's, it's just stay, just be with what there is. Like in career management, for instance, uh, we always see servants wanting to do lateral moves, to know something else different, instead of sticking a bit more with where they are and go eventually go up vertically. But it's like the priority becomes, I want to know something else. I want to have that other experience that I haven't had yet. So there is, of course, lots of strengths behind all of that. Versatility, creativity, positivity. And many people simply miss sevens when they are not present in the team. You know, it, it gets light and nice, but there is a cost for them that they try not to look at because they avoid negatives also of seeing that. And they might rationalize, why would I leave differently than this, right? What, what is the benefit? But it's simply, I will not get more mature if I don't have this human experience of facing the pain that is in there and facing things like difficult conversations. It's about getting maturity and facing what is real, what is there to be dealt with, instead of just making as if that doesn't happen. For many sevens, the avoiding pain part is very unconscious. It just feels like, no, I'm just moving towards what's interesting and stimulating and, and positive experience. The part about that being a move away from pain isn't always uh, very conscious. And then the second thing I wanted to say is a big central feature of sevens is a fear of limitation. They want to be able to experience what they want to experience without being limited in any way from the outside, which is why sevens don't like hierarchy. And so in organizations, sevens will flatten hierarchies by making friends with everyone, the people above them, people ab below them, because they don't want anyone above them to tell them what to do. And they don't really want to tell other people what to do either. So there can be a way of just making friends with everyone. And of course, sometimes that leads to not being able to sort of be the boss, for instance, when they kind of need to have the tough conversation with someone who works for them. It's like a lot of needing escape routes. They want freedom and they, they can get nervous when they don't have freedom to maneuver. Uh, because again, it's like, I want to have the experience I want to have instead of, like you said, stay with or sink more into the present moment and just experience whatever's happening. I want to control that more. Yeah, great points, B. And I have a question. Leah, do you resonate with this then? And also to Jess, same question later. So I'll say I absolutely resonate with this. And uh, something you said earlier about the four and earning the fun actually really deeply resonated with me. This feeling of I need to earn to be able to, to be in the space and not the overconfidence that it's just fun to be around me. So I, it's, it's this interesting feeling of I, I'm actually leaving maybe even more confused and going, I can't wait to take your assessment because maybe I'll type as a four. I don't know. The key is how much are you in your emotions or not? And we're talking all the emotions, especially sadness, because sevens don't really live in that very much. Now, again, if something big happens in your life that's sad, then sevens can, you know, go there. But if you look at the course of your life, 
you know, how much have you been in touch with sadness, uh, darker feelings versus kind of more focused on happy feelings? And maybe only every once in a while, if it if something happens that you can't avoid getting more in touch with uh, more painful feelings. Maybe a four. How about you, Jess? Yeah, I think there are certainly parts and I think it's a little bit more of my exterior. I relate to the to the upbeat. I don't relate as much to kind of the options and wanting a lot. I think I tend to have very, very much focus and finish things through at all costs with kind of a grittiness that sometimes can come with consequences. I often say like, you know, I had to tell myself that I'm letting go rather than giving up. And that's, that's a huge one for me. You know, one of the things I was thinking of that I think may be insight into potentially more of a three, but I'm not sure I was going to ask was I have a really hard time with appreciation given to me. It's almost as if my heart won't let it in. I am okay with critical or constructive information, but when someone says something really kind, it is so hard for me to let that in. And I don't know if that's potentially an indicator of a three in the heart-based center and in that kind of vulnerability that I'm not comfortable with. I would say it's a little bit more three than seven to have a hard time taking in the good stuff. Sevens kind of live for the good stuff, you know? And again, not to say that sevens can't be insecure underneath, but they, they're they coming much more from a positive sense of themselves. And again, they're not as image-oriented as the three. The three is very aware of what people are seeing, you know? And the shape-shifting is really important with the three. Like if threes use their heart function, even when they're not in touch with their feelings all the time, to read the room. Sevens don't read the room as much because they're more inside themselves. Their focus is more on how am I feeling? Threes are just really good at going, okay, this environment values this and then kind of turning themselves into that. And that's why they're sensitive to, it, it can be hard to take in the good stuff because it's almost like I'm never quite achieving what I want to achieve because it's sort of this endless pursuit of wanting to be admired or wanting to be, have the right image or have the success. And so it's, it's like you never quite achieve that. Whereas sevens are coming much more from a positive sense of everything's great, you know, and sometimes it's harder for them to see what isn't so great. That makes a lot of sense. And I think I think I relate more to the three. And I think for me, there's a fear of losing admiration. If you say that, what if I do something where it's taken away? Yes. Right. And how do I continue to have you see me in that way? Because it means so much for me. Right. And so there, there's fear when I hear good things. Exactly. You know, I'm worried that that's... How will I live up to that? Yeah, what if I do something where that's revoked in some way? Yeah. Yeah. So that concern with how others see you is really something more characteristic of threes than sevens. And I, I, I want to say I love to see your processes, both Lee and Jess, uh, of uh, trying to find out and staying open really hoping that all our listeners are doing the same. And I just want to say, sometimes it's also hard to know our types when we have already done therapy and inner work of different kinds. So it's super important to get back to the past and see how was I before that. It's important not to see only the current moment. And also not to have any kind of prejudice against any type, because there is no such a thing really as a type being better than another. First of all, thank you for calling that out, Aranya, because there are certain types that I notice, you know, people want to want to move towards or feel drawn towards when they hear about it. 
And they believe that, you know, because the seven, for example, is always out there and fun and optimistic, right? We all want to be a seven. Or I don't want to be a two is something I've heard from friends that I've given the assessment to. The four, which is when you don't find a lot of in corporate environments, we haven't seen very many. But when we do, it's this like, is it okay to be this way, to be this deep? And the reality is, of course it is. It's just where, like you all shared before, it's where we're starting and where we're waking up from. But the goal is to get to, you know, all these other areas of integration or getting to a point where we have integrated or grown to this place of saying, I'm beyond this. Yeah, I love what you're saying, Nalia. And I have a, have a particular experience with the Enneagram in business that I want to share. So I, I had the experience of both working with senior leaders in companies that are from a certain age and also working with people and, and groups who are millennials, uh, both with the Enneagram and seeing, for instance, I worked in my life a lot with trainees in companies of different kinds, companies from all over the world. So what I report back to you now is that in the past, those leaders from another generation, they were much more concentrated in a few Enneagram types only. And for trainees and millennials, there's so much more diversity when it comes to all types. It's incredible for me to see this difference in almost all organizations. I can't say it's all of them, but when you compare that same organization with the previous and the new generation, it's totally different. And I think it's super important that all of us bring the theme of personality or Enneagram types also into the discussion about diversity. I think diversity needs to include that also because many times companies have some unconscious bias against one or two of the personality types, which by the way, changes from industry to industry. It depends on what industry we're talking about. So I'm very glad to say that I see good evolution happening with more people from all Enneagram types being more and more valued, especially when it comes to millennials in organizations. That brings up just a poignant point for me in remembering I was doing a debrief of someone who was an eight and he was a black male. And he had learned that he felt like he couldn't quite express his eight because of the system, which is rightfully so. And I just wonder if you've had your experience with that and that's a real limitation. And he has a barrier to being himself that many white men who are an eight, they have the privilege of their eightness is valued. Yes. And his is not. Such an important theme, Jess. It's super important to talk about all this, in my view. First, I think that there will be cultures where AIDS are valued and where AIDS are not valued. I could show you examples of organizations on both ends. Now, what kind of person can be an AIDS in an organization that either values or not values AIDS much? It could be, for instance, that male aids are valued, but women aids aren't. 
or it could be that something related to race, like uh, a black American isn't as much valued by being an aide because that gets associated weirdly on persons' heads to anything frightening, which, which comes only from pure prejudice and pure implicit bias. So when, when we work with the Enneagram, especially in corporates, we really try to work on these other dimensions. Before we talk about the inner work each of us have to do, we tend to talk about how everybody here needs to accept everybody else. And what is great is when people learn that others are who they are, not for anything personal they have against me or not for any bad intention. It's just like another personality type as valid as my own. And how am I reacting against that person because of my personality? So we try to teach things like when you hear about one of the nine types and you feel, ooh, this is horrible. Ask yourself what in you makes you feel horrible. So it's all about replacing outer criticism with inner observation. I noticed when I when I first took the test or the assessment, as I started working with it, the biggest shifts in me were I was in a place to be able to be more empathetic towards others because I created a place for more self-compassion. So I could give myself that compassion and then I could also dole it out no matter what the type was. And so it's, I, I went through a period of forcing everyone in my life to take it. It was selfish in that I wanted to know more about them so that I could understand them and empathize with why they were showing up the way they were and what their real motivators were. It's, it's like the, the equalizer I never expected to, to experience. Right. And often when people first learn the Enneagram, one of the first things they say is how surprised they are that not everyone sees the world the way they do. But until you find something like the Enneagram, how would you know, you know, how someone else views the world? And I think one of the benefits of the system is it maps out these worldviews so clearly, you know, that certain people are seeing from a specific perspective and how exactly the perspectives differ from one another so that you can recognize, oh, it's not that that person I'm having a disagreement with is crazy or wrong. It's just that they're seeing it from a whole different angle. And when I can just see the different angles we're each looking at the same thing from, it can make sense of exactly the ways that we see things differently. Yeah, and when it's experiential, not only the theory, it's even better. Like as a mental type five, when I see B, my my business partner here, but also a very, very good friend, and she is emotional. And I come up, well, what is the logic behind that? And, uh, and then she changes emotions and I feel like, what is that? And then I start questioning. I look at, wow, she knows how to be emotional and, and she knows that emotions float, emotions change. And I don't do that. It's great to see her example. And maybe I, I can learn more from that. You know, so it's it's all about uh, developing more tolerance, but also the end of the day, also co about compassion. B, you wrote the nine types of leadership, and you both are coming out with a book. You know, around just it, 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 what it feels like to me is helping again introduce people to the enneagram to their own type that they identify with. For people listening right now who are either saying, "I want to do this," or "I'm thinking about this" from a professional development standpoint, or just 
from what I love, which is just the holistic, like you all said, the holistic, spiritual, psychological, professional, human development perspective. Why should they go on this journey? Well, I think although it can be challenging at times and it can be uncomfortable because all growth is, it leads to an amazing place. It leads to being more effective in the things you do. It leads to being more satisfied and fulfilled in your life because you know more who you are, how you feel, what you want, what's important to you. I think sometimes when we get caught up in a life that our personality leads us into or that our ego is based on sort of what our ego focuses on, which can sometimes be protecting our self-image for all of us, we end up somewhere where we're like, why am I here? Because we didn't make a decision on where to go based on a deeper part of ourselves, based on who we really are. And the Enneagram, sometimes we talk about it in terms of a false self and a true self that the personality is sort of more of a false self that you developed or a persona to, to make your way in the world, but that by adulthood, it becomes limiting. And the problem is we don't see it because it's so familiar, it's so comfortable, it's just the way we've always been or the way that we learn to get along in the world in ways that work for us or even made us very successful in some cases. And so how do you give that up? How do you look at that in a new way? And I think the Enneagram says actually by seeing more what you've identified with and how that's not all of who you are, by studying that, it creates a pathway to knowing more of who you are. It allows you to fulfill more of your potential. It allows you to draw on more of yourself and stop kind of just seeing 360 degrees of reality through a relatively narrow slice based on your type. Mm. Yeah, I, I really like what you said, B. And, you know, Leah, you mentioned our new book. We decided to name it The Enneagram Guide to Waking Up. So to me, that title self explains it's like uh, we think we are in an era that all of us need to truly wake up and the best way to do this is through self-knowledge it's through examining our own opportunities for developing awareness and it's about time that we not only look at the personality we have, but that we courageously face our shadows. And by the way, the sequence of the title of the book is The Enneagram Guide to Waking Up, Find Your Path, Face Your Shadow, Discover Your True Self. And we think that both in life and at work, this is what we all need to do. I feel so hopeful when I see millennials coming from this perspective, you know, wanting to change the world, but also how millennials right now are embracing the Enneagram in ways that previous generations haven't done. It's all because they don't want more of the same. They want to go deeper in things. They want to look inside. We wanted to contribute just a little bit modestly with an introductory book that still honored people who, despite being new to the Enneagram, are serious about looking at their own shadows. And just uh, starting learning this brilliant system by already knowing what to do next and not just having fun with nine types of people. 
thank you both for doing the work that you're doing. You know, be finding out about you a few years ago and watching your videos and just sitting and laughing at the panels while I watched The Seven was was my first experience of the Enneagram. But this has also been a journey for me in trying to help other people understand themselves. And like you said, you know, Aranyo, finding your path, understanding your shadow, but then also, you know, embracing your true self, which speaks to my questionable four. Maybe a four, because that really, that really gets me is that authentic piece. So for you both, before we jump off, I would love for you to complete these three statements. The first is better humans are. Aware of their own biases and willing to explore the unknown. Better humans are courageous enough to see the ways they're stuck in a default mode and asleep in their own lives and feeling motivated to wake up and, and live all of what they can live. Better work is... Where we can be ourselves and not a persona that we have created, believing we will be more successful. A place that we can feel free to express and we can be respected in our particular personalities and our particular way of being and also in all the diverse features we may have. Better work is another field of action or space in our lives where we can develop ourselves. We spend so much time at work, we might as well be learning and growing. And because the gifts that we get from that, we can take in the rest of our lives. And a better world has... People who are doing the most difficult work there is, which is inner work, going beyond our personalities and helping build bridges between the very polarized groups that we have everywhere right now. And doing that with compassion for the other but one that is true because it started with compassion for myself. Yeah, a better world is a more conscious world where people are more self-accepting and more empathic with other people's experience and more able to achieve deeper connections both with themselves and with each other. Awesome. Thank you both so much for joining us and getting in the arena. It's been a pleasure to hear your expertise on the Enneagram and hopefully give some people a little bit of a teaser of what it might feel like and look like to walk this path. Thank you, Leah. It's been really great. Really appreciated how you facilitated here our talk and the energy you bring to all of this. Yes, thank you for having us. It's been really great to talk with you. Our show is hosted by me, Leah Smart and is produced by the amazing LinkedIn media production team. Gratitude to Dan Mills, Nicole Roach, Andy Ta, Katya Kostakova, and Lamia Bowden. Dan Lujan is the mastermind behind the scenes. Chris Eldridge did our cover art, and our music is from the ever-growing collection of APM Music. If you like our show, go on Apple Podcasts to subscribe and rate us. And if the spirit moves you, leave a review. It helps our work get out to more people like you who benefit from it. And if you want to stay in touch, subscribe to our newsletter. It's on LinkedIn and it's called In the Arena. And lastly, you can feel free to email me at inthearena at linkedin.com. Thanks for coming on the journey with me and I'll see you next time.